Welcome to episode four of Sparks of Madness. Um, this week's guest is Sam Serrano. Um, he is uh, quite a young actor, he's the youngest actor we've had on so far, um, and um, was actually born with Kabuki Syndrome, which is a, a genetic disorder which affects um, your visible, visible appearance and, and can have some um, more complex um, issues as well, um, which you know can really affect people. Um, and uh, we talk about that, we talk about his learning difficulties, we talk about sexuality and all of those things being thrown into the melting pot of life if you like and and how they affect um or can affect uh, a young comedian starting out as a teenager in uh, quite a, a, a bizarre industry um so we had a really good chat about that and i think it was a fascinating conversation um all amidst the the chaos of the coronavirus lockdown as well so have a listen let us know what you think um sam started out performing at 17 um and has uh, has been very successful in competitions he's been a runner-up in the great yorkshire fringe comedian of the year um was a finalist of the berry met comedian of the year was down in leicester square not that long ago um and did really well down there as well in a new comedian competition very bright future in comedy um and has already um at the uh you know the ripe old age of next to nothing um had their own uh special uh, uh hot water called boyish um which um was a great show that was on in november last year um, and I believe Sam intends to take that around so well worth a look um, but anyway enough waffling from me this is uh, episode 4 of Sparks of Madness with Sam Serrano Okay so this is episode 4 um, and I'm really pleased to welcome um, Sam Serrano to, uh, to the pod welcome Sam are you well? I'm, I'm alright how are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's uh, it's a bit of a surreal time. So it is. we're recording this uh, beginning of May, um, yeah. and we're now something like seven or eight weeks into lockdown. And oh God, yeah. What what's uh, what's been the biggest impact for you on of lockdown? Um, well, I'm in quite a weird situation because my girlfriend and I came up to her parents for the weekend, and now we've just not been able to leave. So I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> my girlfriend's parents' house. Um, do you get on well with the girlfriend's parents? I do. I really, really well, that's, do. That's a real positive, then, isn't it? I, I'm not getting on well with her, but <laughs> oh, <blimey>. um, <laughs> I, I like. I'm not sure if it's going to be coronavirus or me getting slightly more annoyed at every little thing she does. But she's going to end up dead in a few days. I can, I can <laughs> feel it. I can feel it. Her night farts are incredible. And I don't think we're going to make it out of this lockdown. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, so you're, you're actually, this is, as I say, episode four, and you are yeah. by far the youngest um, guest <laughs> we've had so far. I think, are you 20, 21? 20. So yeah. you are actually younger than my relationship with my wife. And <laughs> I've got to tell you, if my farts, if my farts <laughs> or her farts were the defining issue, we wouldn't have this long. So maybe maybe try and get over that a little bit yeah um, but, uh, anyway so um but you're not defined by your age i'm not going to try i'm going to try my best not to patronize you even though you're less than half my age <laughs> um, so what i wanted to talk about first of all i mean in part of it is i suppose due to your age is that mm-hmm. you are um one of the younger acts on the circuit and actually yeah. 
you've been going for a couple of years already and had some really solid successes. And I, I was looking, mm-hmm. I Googled you because I know yeah. you, I've gigged with you a few times, but uh-huh. I, you know, you've been going longer than I have and I didn't really know your background. The mm-hmm. first thing that came up was a Puerto Rican boxer from uh, the seventies. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. It's yeah. a Samuel Serrano. There's, who, a, uh, there's a stripper as well. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I think so. That's, it's a good name with pedigree then. I mean, this boxer yeah. looks all right. He's got 50 wins out of 57 fights. So that's not bad. <laughs> Um, but um, so, but then I was looking, and obviously you did really well in two, 2018. You were runner-up at the Great Yorkshire Fringe New Act yeah, of the Year, um, and then I think, yeah, and then in last year you did really well in the LGBT uh, New Act competition. You went down to got to the final in that, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I was runner-up in the final of that, and so fantastic. Yeah. Have you had any wins as well, or is it just currently always the dance <laughs> match? Current, and um, I won the Stockton Gong. Which Excellent. Was nice. Which is the most brutal gong in the north at the end of the oh, day. So it really I is. think anyway. And then I got um I got like five or six gigs off the back of that, all of which have now been cancelled. But yeah. um I also got that was really I remember I just started seeing my girlfriend when I run that. We just started going out and she was a bit like, Why is he doing comedy? And I went and won that and it was a hundred pound. And I was like, Right, I'm gonna go. And we spent a hundred pound on breakfast the next day. Of me going, see, comedy can pay well. <laughs> hundred pound of breakfast—that sounds um, even by my standards impressive for a feed. Mate, we had uh, three good. each. <laughs> <laughs> Superb! And you weigh about four stone, so that's amazing. Um, yeah, brilliant. I'm um, throwing it all up later because of my bulimia. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. So that's, I think we might touch on that later. Um, yes. So how did you get started in comedy, though, Sam? Um. Well, when I was, um, I don't follow talk about later, but I've got learning difficulties, got kind of autism, but I don't, I'm not good at social interaction. So when I was four, my mum said that I should start drama. Mm-hmm. I started doing drama. I loved it. Um, but I was always more keen on like writing my own thing. And my drama teacher was like, well, you should like, you should go in and try comedy. You should give comedy a go. Um, and my mum was a bit annoyed, like, don't tell him that, because I want him to do drama to get to know people and work with people, not comedy, which is on your own. So it was my te- drama teacher basically going, I don't want to teach you anymore. <laughs> Please go do something else. So I, st- I did that. I had to do it at, um, was it a place in Liverpool called The Brink, uh, which is a non-alcoholic bar, because it was the only place that would let a 14-year-old <laughs> do comedy. Um and that, I don't think they run that gig anymore. It's a shame. It was a nice gig. Um, I did, yeah, I did. I did my first gig there, and then I went back there to do my first ever paid gig, and it wasn't as nice as I remembered. But yeah, it was. That was my first gig. Um, I'd never really been into comedy before that, though. It was one of those things that someone just suggested I tried it, so I did. And I think I saw I saw Miranda Hart at the Echo Arena, and I remember thinking. I could do this easily. Like, mm. she's great, but I was like, I could easily do this. <laughs> um, so basically, yeah, just a mixture of my drama teacher being fed up of me and me wanting to be like Miranda Hart. <laughs> so you're not one of those people in the industry who is kind of, or certainly at the start, you weren't like a student of comedy. You weren't someone who watched all of the, the big name specials and all of that and, and sort of, analyzed it and and studied it for you you just kind of thought yeah, yeah i'll have a go that's yeah. um 
Pretty much. It's either ballsy or completely mental or a bit of both, I think. I think I only really got into comedy because my mum wanted me to read the newspapers and I wouldn't, so she let me watch um, Have I Got News For You? And that was how I got all my news. <laughs> so. so your first taste of comedy was proper satire. That's good. Yeah. Um, another thing that's much, much older than you, though, Have I Got News For You? has been going since like the early 90s, I think. I didn't realise how long it had been going. Like, yeah, yeah. Dancing it's been like, to be honest. days of four channels. That's, it's been going since oh. there were only four channels, I think. Um, channel 5 is younger than Have I Got News For You, but amazing. Wow. Um, so, um, you touched on on your learning difficulties. You've got a few different, I, mean, I don't want to use the word issues because it's a bit mm-hmm. weird, but you've got a few different things that might impact your, your comedy other than specifically yeah. mental health issues. Tell us about those. Um, so, I've got something called Kabuki Syndrome, uh, mm. which... Like even I go to doctors and they don't even know what it fucking is. Um, basically, uh, the way it was described to me when I was a, I went to get tested for autism and they told me that I wasn't autistic enough to be autistic, which is essentially what what um Kabuki syndrome is. So that's affected me a lot with the most like social aspect of comedy, like like mingling and talking to promoters and stuff. I'm hopeless of that i'm very much i can't talk to people i'm like give me an email address and i'll send you an email that's one thing which very much affected it um also i have very like set routines which i've i've got better at broke breaking out of because doing comedy you'll know there'll be <laughs> you'll get like a message saying are you free in like 20 minutes to come do the mm-hmm. gig so i i've got better at just dropping everything and running to do a gig um, but and has were, that improvement sort of led into other areas of your life, or is that you'll you'll change your routine for comedy, but not necessarily other stuff? Definitely, I'm now annoyingly not attached to a routine. <laughs> like thinking mm. about how I used to be, um, and I'm now like, oh, I can't really. I'll, I'll do it later. And it used to be, I'm doing this at this time, and I used to be really organised, and now I'm a lot more lackadaisical. <laughs> mm. Right, okay. And then um, also you're an LGBT act. Um, yes, I am. Which So you, I speak about it, so looking at this is from the point of view of a promoter, so I promote mm-hmm. some low-level gigs. Yeah. And there's no doubt that as much as people might not want to admit it to the outside world, when you're trying to put together a lineup, mm-hmm. ideally what you don't want, but what you quite often end up with, is 95% of the applications for a gig coming yeah. from straight white men who look a lot like me. Yes. Um, and that's what you get. So you're, a, you're, cynically speaking, your advantage is possibly stuff that might make your life outside of comedy more of a challenge than yeah. my life white guy. Um, mm-hmm. But in comedy, that point of difference is something that, do you think it's helped you progress quicker? Do you think it's made you more marketable, for want of a better word? It's, it's, I think it has made me more marketable. Like, mm. um, I, I, on the occasions I do a solo show, you go in and there's a lot of young, uh, non, uh, cisgendered people there who obviously hear my stuff and like relate to it. So I think, mm. I'm not sure if it's being marketable or just being relatable. Cause I think the issue mm. with me is I, I, I've never seen myself as very marketable. Cause I think if you read on a poster, come watch this bisexual gender fluid with learning difficulties do comedy you think well that sounds like that sounds shit <laughs> that sounds like something like the make a wish foundation has set up 
that's um, <laughs> remarkably honest of you. I think. So I think it's, it's for me looking from the from sort of with a foot in both camps, if you like, as, mm-hmm. a, as a member of as someone going to going to see it, it yeah. wouldn't necessarily tell me anything about your style, your approach on stage, what to expect. It might tell yeah. me about the subject matter you're going to talk about potentially, mm-hmm. but not yes, not kind of. It's not saying you know, it's not like. This is a one-liner act where you might get, you know, a Tim Vine yeah, poster yeah. might make it clear that he's going to give you three hundred puns a minute, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, again, from the point of view of someone who's promoting a gig or trying to book a gig, yeah. you're ticking a lot of boxes that yes. mean that that the hope is people are either going to relate to it or the people that don't relate to it are going to be really interested in it. Yeah. Um, so I think that's it's just interesting. Do you think that? Being young, uh, mm-hmm. being you know gender fluid, being bisexual, yeah. having having you know a learning disability. Mm-hmm. Do you think within the industry that changes how other acts see you? Um, I think really it, just accepting and that's it. It makes me much more memorable. Mm-hmm. I think, which I think has done me a lot of good, like. I think promoters remember me because I talk about different things. You know, if you like, if you are a straight white man, I think there's like, there's not many avenues you can go down. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But with me, because I've got like, I can talk about my learning difficulties or being gender fluid or bisexual. I think it's it's harder for me to look unoriginal. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think promoters definitely remember me more. I've had yeah, you're not going to get called hack very often. Yes. But it's happened before when like people because I wear makeup on stage and I get it. A lot of people go, "Oh, it's a gimmick." He's not. Mm. They wouldn't be funny if they didn't wear makeup. But I'm like, there are so many gigs. Like when I'm testing new material, I never wear makeup because I want to make mm. sure the material's good. Mm-hmm. So I think. I think whatever, when you're doing something that's slightly different, there'll always be people who criticise you. You know, comedy is so subjective that not everyone's going to like what you do. Mm. So I think even if, like, I was, like, a straight white man, there'd still be people who disagreed with what I did. But I've never had, like, homophobia on the circuit much. From what I've seen, a lot of promoters have been very, very accepting of it i had i had one promoter um come up to me <laughs> after a gig um and he went oh you, you should be lucky i've booked you and i went oh yeah i'm, I'm really grateful for the gig and he went no no, no I, I don't usually book your lot <laughs> and i don't I don't quite know what he meant <laughs> by that you ask him which your lot he meant because yeah. <laughs> there's so many your lot i could be <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Well, he could have just meant children because you're so young. It's, uh, yeah. it's uh, I think it's, it's I, I do think because I've, I've been in comedy for about eighteen months, and mm-hmm. the, I suppose I already always knew it was a really liberal th- compared to most society. Most yes, pretty, pretty laid back. But what I didn't expect that has been a real positive was because I've I've got a bit of a background in theatre and it can be quite a cutthroat world and a very bitchy world. Yeah. Um. And definitely. and a lot of that bitchiness is open and to your face. Mm-hmm. Um. And genuinely speaking, in the, in since I came to comedy, I mean I've come into it really late. I'm forty two. I was 40, 40 when I started. Yeah. It's um, 
the, the support and the, the camaraderie between acts. And sometimes, even if you've only gigged with someone once and they remember you, then you feel like you've kind of got a, a, a pal for life or a mate for life kind of thing because the support mm-hmm. you get. Most comedians want most comedians to do well. I don't see, for example, you as someone who is competing with me directly for gigs because if yeah. if we're both in gig, then mm-hmm. there's a real difference in, in dynamic and demographic. So therefore, it's whichever one fits. Yeah. You know, and, and and it's kind of one of those things where the, pre, the the old sort of hack phrase of more power to you seems to fit really well within the industry because most comedians want comedians to do well. If all comedians yeah. are doing well, we're all happy. Yes, there are shitloads of us now. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's probably the busiest it's ever been. But yeah, um, definitely. Do you feel like you've had a lot of support from other actors? Definitely. Um, I've been quite blown away from the support from acts like. Um, being asked like, do you like support for people who like if they think, oh, my crowd would like them, I I get asked to do support, which is always an absolute honor. So getting like higher profile acts supporting you is brilliant, but also getting like people suggesting you for gigs and stuff, knowing that people are like behind you and want you to do well, is one of the best feelings in the world. And I do feel like because it. There are some people in comedy who are very cutthroat and very determined to do well and just step on loads of people. But for every one of them, there's about 100 people who just want to support everyone. And I feel that they are the people that really make the circuit as rewarding as it is and as nice a place to be as it is. Okay. Um, I'm glad because that means we both think quite similarly, (laughs) which is nice. Um, Mm -hmm. So... Obviously, the sort of the underpinning thing of this podcast is to look at that correlation between comedians and mental health issues, because there's yeah. definitely a, it certainly is, a, most people who think about it would agree that there's been a prevalence of, you know, a lot of talk about mental health issues lately in the media. But before, yeah. that, years ago, it was known that comedians, maybe a lot of them had got mental health issues, going all the way back to, to Tony Hancock in the, sort of the 60s and you know, yeah. Robin Williams and people like that. They seem to go hand in hand. What mm-hmm. sort of issues have you had with your mental health? Um, so I've had... The main one I've had is depression, which I know is kind of like, I think that's one most, the majority of people struggle with. But I think the thing with, the thing with depression and especially doing comedy, it can be a very lonely life. Mm. Like when you're sat on a mega bus at mm. 2 a.m., because you want to do five minutes of comedy and you realise that most of those audience members, you were just five minutes to them and they don't, they won't like go out to see you again. That can be quite, quite a, it's quite a lonely lifestyle to live and it can get to you very, very quickly. So I, I remember there's like, for me, the way I like saw it was there's between 10 and 20 minutes on that stage where I am at my happiest. That is the time where I feel like I can be whoever I want to be and I am mm-hmm. accepted forever I want to be. And that is the time that I am at my happiest and I live to for those 10, 20 minute intervals 
of just being allowed to speak about what I want. But when you're given that freedom and that platform, it can be very difficult to then go back to normal life. Like the contrast is massive, isn't it? It really is. It's it's like with um I was watching it the other day, I was like it's like with Hannah Montana. She has that's the only way I can think about describing it. There's two worlds in my head. There's the world where I'm the centre of attention and people are listening to me. And then there's the world where I'm just walking around and I'm just another person. And I think because there's the two polar opposites, that can really, really get to you if you let it. I have to tell you at this point, yeah. I didn't for one moment ever expect anyone would talk about Hannah Montana on the <laughs> podcast. That's amazing. Um, that's just, just, I need to refine my stride now. And not the <laughs> one, but, um, So do you think then, because you talked about sort of the loneliness of the traveling, for example, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I guess there's certainly in comedy, there's, there's, there's two, two sort of, um, or three kind of groups of that. There's people who drive to gigs. Yes. People who drive to gigs in groups, and then there's people who quite often travel on their own. And I'm really lucky in that I drive, and mm. I, I pretty much always drive to gigs, um, yeah. which, A, stops me drinking uh, while I'm at a yeah. gig because I don't want to go on stage pissed because that's really bad. Um, yeah. And, and but, but quite often I go with people because we tend to try and get on the, in the local circuit, we'll tend to try and get booked onto gigs together because mm-hmm. then we have a bit of a road trip, a bit of camaraderie and, and what have you. Um, yeah. Do you you've got that issue of the sort of the travel potentially affecting you, but do you think that, that um, the your mental health issues are improved by that time on stage more than they're damaged by the travel, or what do you think? Definitely, I don't think I would be as happy as I am at the moment if it weren't for comedy. It's mm. it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't had it, like. Like getting that laugh is one of the greatest feelings in the world, and I think that even though I do at times have times when I'm sad, and at times when I just feel like I can't make myself happy, my my job is to make other people happy, and surely mm. that is a much more is is more of a talent. I'm I'm happier knowing that I'm making other people happy than knowing I can make myself happy. I'd rather do that. And I think, because I use, because I talk about mental health a lot in my show and I talk about the things which are getting me down. And that's helped a lot because whenever I now have a shitty thing that happens in my life, like um, my mum and dad being divorced or um, like my bulimia or anything like that, I don't see it now as a shitty thing i can i see it as an opportunity to write Mm. and an opportunity to talk about this and try and remove any taboo from the subject because i think that's one thing that we need that comedy is great for is taking away taboo and giving subjects which people think we shouldn't talk about this like mental health and Mm. like um all those different kind of things and kind of giving it a voice and getting people to speak about it. So I think I wouldn't be as happy as I am in the moment if it weren't for comedy. Comedy has definitely had the most positive impact on my life than it than anything else ever could have. 
That's great. That's really good to hear. Um, and I think it's yeah. When you talk about um, the feeling of getting a laugh, it is yeah. really difficult to explain to people outside of of the industry what that yeah. feeling is like. It's kind. Of, I mean, it, for me, it's an absolute natural high. Um, and oh, I, yeah. I'm driving back from a gig. If I feel if I feel like I was really on it, my set was really tight, and I was mm-hmm. kind of you know at, at my best, which isn't a feeling. You know, I'm not going to be one of those acts who's like I'm not going to say I smashed every gig. Um, yeah. Sometimes you come out of a gig and you think. Jesus, that was a good gig. And when you yeah. get that feeling, I can be, I can live on that emotionally for days, um, a good oh, two yeah. or three days. I know some people, with by the time they get home, they're down again. And I think that's it's different for different people. But mm-hmm. it's really, I mean, I've got, a, I, was, I was talking about this in a previous podcast. I've got a friend who um, runs a mental health uh, website um, and was talking yeah. to me. He's outside of the industry, and he he was just like unable to to fathom why anyone who has the issues that so many comics have in different forms with mental health yeah. subject themselves to it because you know it's like putting your hand in the fire or whatever you want to call it yeah. you're opening yourself up to the possibility that because if you if you bomb then the yeah. that high can become a real low and stuff how do you cope with i mean you're not the sort of actor who's going to go out and, and die very often but how do you cope with that feeling sometimes of a gig that's gone oh. shit and it, and it affects you i am the worst for dealing with bad gigs um as you said i'm a child prodigy so it's not something i have to focus on a lot however when it does happen i have a tendency to kind of cut myself off Mm. and kind of be like why why am i doing this when like the few gigs that i have which are good i forget about and i just focus on the ones that weren't good Mm. When bad gigs happen, it's especially when like I think it's if you're talking about more personal stuff as well, that can make it a little bit harder. Feel more vulnerable. Yeah, definitely. Because you you're putting yourself out there. Like if I go on stage and talk about my mum and dad being divorced and no one laughs, I'm like, well, that's my coping mechanism. But like I think if I like went on stage and talked about like. I don't know, like TV or something. I don't think it would kick as much. But I think the hardest thing about it is trying to remember that it was just a one-off. And comedy is so subjective that you're not going to be everyone's cup of tea. It's mm. it's like being, you could be the best chef in the world and it's like someone going, right, cook a meal for these people. You're like, well, well what do they like? Oh, we don't know. It's just going to be random people, whoever turns up. And you can cook, like, the best roast dinner in the world and then turn up and they're all vegans. So you, mm. that is – it's still a good roast dinner. It's just for those people, it's pointless because they can't use it. It's not their type of thing. And it's just remembering that comedy is so subjective and you can't let one audience get you down. And I think that's just – you have to have a very thick skin, a very particular mindset, and understand that not everyone in the world is going to find you funny. Mm. Yeah, and and actually, it would be really really weird if they did. I think is the thing. It's, yeah, it's trying to get Definitely. your head around that, and and like you said, because there's so many different styles of comedy and different statuses yeah. of acts and stuff like that. That it's it's really weird. And, and I I used to I don't know if when I first started, I used to get annoyed mm. with. Particularly if I was sort of 
because I host some open mic nights and stuff like that. Yeah. I used to get annoyed if the audience didn't get an act that I'd booked in the same way I got them. Because yes. I'm thinking, this guy's absolutely hilarious. And the audience, and, and they go out and they do a good performance and the audience don't get it. And I used to think, oh, this, this, that audience, it's their fault. You know, and I'm, I actually, yeah. I remember saying it a couple of times on stage saying, if the comedians at the back of the room are pissing themselves laughing and you guys aren't, that's on you. And then yeah. I realised that's a bit, it's actually, the, it's a dick thing to say. Well, yeah. that's right. We'll all think it because because there is this uh, this elaborate menu, like you say, of, of things that are available to people. Yeah, everyone yeah. like everything, um, mm-hmm. and and also there are things that that comedians will say and other comedians will find funny that an yeah. audience will be so shocked by or put out by that they're just not going to get it. Yeah. Um, I remember a gig you, so I think I've gigged with you twice. It may, it may have been more, but two that I remember. So there was one in Liverpool at Hope Street for, um, it was a, a benefit that Luke Norris did for PTSD. Yeah. Um, and that was the first time we had chats. I think you were on just before me, mm-hmm. um, or just after me, one of the two. We were next to each other in the order. And, and that was when I yeah. noticed you put your makeup on and you explained that you put it on for your performances and stuff. Yeah. Um, the next time was at a gig in Idol. Um, at the little the oh, yeah. arm and Nick Crook run. Yeah. And you were, you were you were a different kind of creature that night because you were you felt it felt to me like you were really anxious and you actually said to me, I need a good gig tonight. I really need a good gig. And I think you might have had yes. a bad run of gigs coming up. Do you find yeah. that because obviously you're able to deal with you know, rationally the idea that sometimes you're not gonna have a great gig, but the mm-hmm. anxiety level in you that night, did that help you or did that harm you, do you think? Um that definitely helped me. I remember that night very, very well because I'd, um, I'd broken up with my girlfriend like 20 minutes before setting off for the gig. Mm. Um, so it was one of those where I was like, I have to have a good gig tonight. If this goes badly now, I'm fucked. But I think I, I definitely get anxious because I, I put too much pressure on myself to be good. Like I tell myself that if I don't get uh, a, a round of applause for every 10 minutes. So if I'm on stage for 20 minutes, I need two rounds of applause. Mm. And if I'm not getting that, then I'm not good enough. And I'm not doing well enough. My material's not strong enough. But that's something I've like put on myself. Because mm. some audiences just aren't, just don't like clapping. They might not stop laughing long enough to clap. <laughs> that's yeah. the thing. Sometimes that's it, isn't it? Yeah. But like, because I remember that the uh, Stockton Gong gig I did obviously went really well, but I came off going, oh, that was shit, because they didn't applaud. And I think it was, I think it was Howard Answer, well, we, we, you didn't give them a chance to applaud. You just kept talking over the laughs, they didn't have a chance, which is fair enough. But I think that it's one of the things that I put so much pressure on myself to be as good as I possibly can, that when... I don't kind of reach those sky high limits I put on myself, then that can get me down a bit. And I think you definitely, you definitely do get more anxious, especially with the bigger gigs. Like the the Llama gig is like a, it's quite a big theatre, mm. and when you've not yeah, been, it's a size for auditorium, isn't it? It's probably like yeah. 100. It was like I remember I did um. The most nervous I've ever been for a gig. I did the Leicester Square uh, final, uh, New Comedian of the Year, Leicester Square New Comedian of the Year, the finals at the Leicester Square Theatre, and 
on the wall next to the stage is a picture of Doug Stanhope, who yeah. is like my comic idol. And it just hit me that if I go on and die on that stage, then I've just died on the same stage as one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest comedians of all time. You immediately um, whacking a load of pressure on yourself. Right? Yeah, I did. Um, I've only done. I, I don't do a lot of gongs. I've done a few. And yeah, I did um, King Gong at Comedy Store in Manchester. Oh God! You're <laughs> doing of, having, of going for a piss before the show, and yeah. you go through the back area to the toilets, and all it is is just a wall of who's who in comedy on yes. that stage. And there's so many of my heroes on there, mm-hmm. and I suddenly thought, "Fuck, this is a big." I never got that feeling at the Frog and Bucket, for example. You know, yeah, um, as good as the Frog is. And I, and I suddenly felt my nerves, and I don't normally get nervous particularly. I'm normally pretty relaxed. My nerves mm-hmm. kicked in. And then, you know, for those who are listening who don't know what a gong show is, you get five minutes, if you're lucky, to impress. Yes. And if the audience don't like you, you're not getting five minutes because they effectively vote to, for you to hit, have the gong smashed and off you go. Yeah. And as soon as the first audience put their card up to say I didn't like me, my performance went through the fucking floor. Uh, yeah, and it was, and I, I maintain now it was because I put too much pressure on myself mm-hmm. to do well on that stage. Not just because it was an audience on the stage; it was that stage, and it's a big venue, and it was, and and it was just a fucking gong show. They do one every week; it doesn't matter. Some people, some acts will go and do it every week. It's not a problem. Yeah, but that pressure, and I beat myself up over that for a couple of days, mm-hmm. and then I suddenly had that thing of looking. Um, the following week and I sat down and I was talking to a couple of my friends in the industry and I said, do you know, I've, I, I always feel like if I'm on the bill, I'm generally a strong enough act that I can hold my own with pretty much anyone. I feel like my, my demeanour on stage is, is good enough to, to deliver a performance. An audience aren't going to know oh, I've only been going 18 months or whether I've been going 18 years, they're not going to know. But <laughs> competitions and gongs, I've suddenly put this thing in my head of I've got to do well, I've got to do well. And then I don't. I don't particularly do well in them. Um, I don't yeah, write, yeah. but you know, I'm not someone who's getting through heats to finals of things. I'm not someone who's winning gongs everywhere, and and, and they don't slow your career down if you don't win them. But I suddenly start would start beating myself up, and my mood would be in the toilet for a few days um, mm-hmm. until I realised that that thing of they don't slow you down if you don't win them. They just speed you up if you win them, and, and it's great if you win them. But it's not going to be the thing that defines my my comedy sort of pathway or whatever. So yeah. It's that's probably the own, and I've and effectively since that gong, I've really stopped doing them um, because I just realised I don't really, they don't really help me. Um, do you ever have a uh, maybe you'll come away and think I'm not doing that again because it's not good for me? Yeah, I have stopped gong shows completely, um, right. which was the best decision of my life. I've, I've won King Gong, I've won Frog and Bucket, I've won Stockton Gong. I'm not doing any more. Yeah, I think because there's no need now. Once you've got those three in your CV, anyway, and certainly in the north, yeah. And where else are you going to go anywhere? Definitely. And I think like, and why would you do it to yourself? (laughs) Yeah, I don't understand. Like some acts, like I know there's some pro acts who go to gong shows to test new material, Mm. and I'm just like, I could never ever do that. The second I am away from doing gong shows, I'm never never going back to do another. But it's the same with like competitions as well. I'm trying to put a stop to competitions because I've done well in a few, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm happy with doing that. I think on my CV now, enough clubs 
a book and you've paid for it that I don't need to do them. Yeah. yeah. Like they're a means to an end, aren't they? I suppose. Yeah. And you're already there where you would be. Yeah. I think that's sensible. I mean, I think the thing for me is that I got a bit fed up with, particularly sort of the new acts competitions. I only did a few, but I got a little bit sort of. Um, it doesn't help when when audiences regularly come and say, "Oh, well, we voted for you. You were our favourite." When you yeah. when you feel like you've done really well and then you're getting nowhere. And actually, again, that would be it's that bittersweet thing of, well, I've got some validation, but not enough. And I think imposter syndrome kicks in a bit when you see people going out and doing well. I love Dave Borden, but I fucking hate Dave Borden because he had that year where he won everything. And it was like, you little prick. Um, But you're glad to see people doing well, but you think I gig with him all the time. And we always do a similar level of performance. We always get on really well. And, and, you know, and then, you get. I don't like jealousy, and sometimes I think it, those things can make you feel a bit jealous or a bit yeah. resentful of other people. So that's why I just think it can be a bit toxic. So I'm trying to step away from them. But in terms of um, your mental health now, then today in, in mm-hmm. May 2020, where are you? Um, I think I'm much better than I was than I would have been months ago. Mm. Um. But yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty okay. The lockdown has got to me a bit just with not being able to do comedy. But I've, I've found that like I'm using this time to write more, mm. and like I'm writing like a sitcom and stuff to try and to try and just like I'm trying to perfect my act now and make it as good as I possibly can. So once lockdown's over, I can just go out. And like, be better. I'm trying to make the use best use of my time. And I think a few months ago, if someone had come up to me and gone, "Are oh, you not allowed to gig for a few months?" I just wouldn't have been able to comprehend that. I would be like, mm. "But like, comedy is how I cope with things. How's this gonna happen?" But I think because I've just become like a lot more relaxed, and it's been a lot better. And like. Like being away from my family and all that is it was a bit of a struggle, but I think now I'm a lot better just because I've grown and I can kind of see perspective a lot more as well. So in some ways the the lockdown for you in terms of your life as an act, if you like, has been mm-hmm. a positive. Yeah. And that's then sort of fed into your your mental health. Do you see your now, because you're, you know, you're a comedian with mental health issues, or you're someone with mental health issues, does comedy, whatever you want to define it as. Do you see those yeah. two things as kind of being fundamentally linked now? Then, for you, if one, if one's in a good place, the other one will be. If one's not going as well, the other one won't be. Definitely. If I've yeah. had a run of bad gigs, I will be in. I will be like in this depressive slump mm. kind of mood. I think partly because I put too much pressure on myself and partly because it means so much to me, this validation from random strangers in little towns. I put so much meaning and worth onto that. Mm. Um, So I think there's definitely a link. But at the same time, if gigs could be going brilliantly, but if like my life outside comedy isn't going that well it needs to be like a fantastic gig 
to pick me up. Like that gig in Idol, I that was it was a tough it was a tough one to get on that stage and kind of I was kind of on autopilot on that night. Yeah. Um, but I think it's all that's also beneficial because it's like you have this escapism. There's a form of escapism for right, right for twenty minutes. I have to be happy. I have to make people laugh. I have to put everything behind me and just go out and make people laugh. So I think it's that's, definitely helped. Yeah, I think that's um, and and I think the thing is as well is that that obviously in an ideal world we'll always as act be one hundred percent up and focused and buzzing to do every gig, but that's mm-hmm. not the real world. And I think no. if you're good enough that you can can if you know your material well enough and you're a good enough performer to go out and deliver quality yeah. when mm-hmm. it's one of the last things you really want to do that speaks yeah. volumes for your kind of your resilience and your your, your talent i suppose um, yes you're you're you know as i said i don't want to patronize you you are you're incredibly young for an act that's been going for so long and <laughs> um, to have started and you know mm-hmm. i think the only other act i know who started at a similar age is something like jack carroll um yeah and and you guys are both now you've kind of gr- almost you've matured in the industry you've gone through adolescence while performing yeah a lot of was... people would look at that and wonder how that impacted you but i suppose mm-hmm. my question is now the world is your oyster kind of thing in terms of comedy you're 21 um or 20 21 um going on in the next 10 years for example by the time you hit your 30s where do you want to be within comedy what's your goal um I'd love to be like, I'd love to be able to tour and stuff. Mm. I'd love that, like to tour like quite good sized venues. So I'm taking, I'm trying to take my show at the moment on like a tour of like forty to sixty seater rooms. Mm. Um, is boyish is that the name? Of the yes, show? my show yeah. boyish. Um, so I'd love to do that, but I think in a good few years I'd love to be like I don't think I'd ever want to be hugely famous mm-hmm. I think I could I, I see like some of these acts who like go and just do arena tours and then don't go to clubs I don't think I'd ever be able to not do clubs yeah. I think I'd always have to be there so I think it's kind of the lifeblood of the industry I think it's that thing that definitely you'll never be closer you'll never be more in tune I yeah, in a, in a decent club environment, um, and I and, and I'm not a big fan of it. To be honest, arenas just it doesn't. Yeah, I don't like. I've I've seen I've been to see comedians in arenas. Yeah, and I've always regretted it because it's made me mm-hmm. feel too distant from it. Um, the only think, yeah, if you can get the right, if you can get the yeah. sweet spot of the right number, big enough but not too big. Yeah, and that's where you see yourself. And and just making a living out of comedy for forever is that your plan? Pretty much, yeah. As long as I'm still making people happy and yeah. like the whole my mental health's still up and it's not because I know like people I know Bo Burnham's spoken out a lot about how being famous has affected his mental health. I think as long as that doesn't happen and affect me, then as long as I'm making other people happy and I'm reasonably happy, then I don't think much else could go wrong there. I'd love to be able to tour and stuff but as long as I'm still getting booked at clubs and I'm still making people happy that's all I want and that leads in because we're coming to the end now that leads in perfectly <laughs> to to my last question which is something I'm asking everyone that comes on the pod um and and you just mentioned there you know if you'll do it as long as you're 
you feel your mental health doesn't get detrimentally affected too much. Yeah. If you could, and and I'll I'll, I'll ask yours in the same way I've asked other people who have multiple issues. Mm-hmm. If you could um, take away your your learning disability, for example. Yeah. Um, but the cost was that you could never perform again. Would you do? Absolutely not. I could <laughs> never stop performing. Never. You left a big pause, and I thought you were going to say absolutely yes. I was like, <laughs> so, the same, so the same question then is, and this is the one that I ask in everyone, regardless, <laughs> is if you could guarantee that your mental health would be for the rest of your days in a <laughs> perpetually positive place, no dips, yeah. no black dog, no whatever. Yeah. But the cost was that you didn't get on stage with a mic in your hand. Could you do it? No, because I think those down days are what makes me my act interesting and I need those days to kind of talk about it. I remember there was um <laughs> a promoter was telling me before he was going, Are you ever worried that like bad stuff will stop happening to you so you won't have <laughs> you won't have material anymore. So I think those down days are needed to make the up days feel as good as they are. And now I'll I'll always need material and stuff to talk about as well. Yeah, fantastic. That's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Sam. Um, Thank you very and, much for having uh, me on. And, you know, I would thoroughly recommend that when Boyish gets back out there, people yeah. can see it. And it's, Thank it's, you very uh, much. It's fantastic. And, you know, I will patronise you. It's fucking sickening that you're so successful. So <laughs> Thank um, you. But also tremendously proud of you. You keep Thank you very much. Fantastic. And thanks for talking to us. Stay safe. Thank you very much for having me on. I'll see you soon. Okay, that was Sam Serrano, um, and uh, I enjoyed that conversation. It was it's always interesting to me to talk about issues I haven't had a lot of experience with myself um, as a way of trying to broaden my own knowledge and horizons, so really appreciate that. And I would say, having gigged with Sam a few times, you know, to to already have the body of work and the the gigs under his belt that he does at such a young age without wanting to sound patronising is really impressive. Um, and I think you're going to see and hear a lot more of him in the future. So um, do look him up. And when comedy finally returns after the uh, the, the plague and the apocalypse we're seeing at the moment, um, go see him. Um, and um, you won't regret it. Uh, next week we have an episode um, with Matthew Reed, who's a superb comic from the northeast, um, who's been performing since 1999, um, and uh, we we cover a whole wealth of issues. We talk about his um, uh, his his mental health breakdown um, he had um, some years ago, which almost drove him to to suicide. Uh, we talk about um, 
his second big episode, which was um, a time where um, someone manipulated him so badly in his life that he um, developed a really profound and debilitating anxiety disorder, which still affects him to this day. Um, cut a long story short, he was um, catfished and stalked so elaborately um, it took years to unravel what had gone on. And um, and so interesting is the story that he managed to make an Edinburgh show out of it and record a special called Stalked, um, which uh, is available on Hot Water On Demand. Um, we also talk about the impact of the coronavirus lockdown, uh, managing your own mental health conditions. And we, we talk at the start about the current Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of the horrific murder of George Floyd um, and how that's impacting on people over here. Matthew actually went to a march yesterday um, and uh, or over the weekend and uh, we, we talk about that as well and, and the impact that, that all of the coverage of those issues on social media can have on your mental health as well. So it's a really interesting one to look out for next week. Please do come back. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, share. Uh, finally, the podcast is now out on, on various platforms. So it's available on Anchor. It's available on um, on Google Pods. It's uh, available everywhere, basically. I think that really matters these days. Spotify the lot. So please do like, subscribe, share. Give us your comments. If there's anybody you think we should interview or, or I should interview, do drop me a line. Let me know what you think. Um, and uh, thanks for listening. See you next week. Sparks of Madness is hosted by Graham Rayner and is a gag and bone man comedy production. <laughs>